I see so many of my parents' friends and and um, a generation ahead of mine who work their lives mm. and work so hard and they get to retirement age and they get sick. Well, what's the point? You know, invest in your health now if you aren't already doing so. It's so important. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. In 2008, Nick Lee was living in Ho Chi Minh City with his wife Jody and their two children, Jack and Arabella. Nick was away working when Jody rang complaining of abdominal pain. The next morning, her doctor recognised an obstruction in her bowel. Scans showed a bowel cancer tumour that had virtually blocked the bowel. Jody was airlifted to Bangkok for emergency surgery, but it turned out the cancer had spread to her lymph and liver. Jody died two years later, at the age of 40. I first met Nick in 2012, two years after Jody's death. He was wearing a little black dress, sitting on his bicycle and preparing to cycle from Canberra to Melbourne with 20 of his mates. It was just one of many ways he worked to raise money to research and detect bowel cancer. Through the Jody Lee Foundation, Nick has ridden some crazy distances on the bike, all in the cause of raising money to combat the disease that took his wife's life. He's worked with the AFL to improve awareness and received a federal government grant to run a national advertising campaign on bowel cancer screening. In 2015, Nick was a South Australian finalist in the Australian of the Year Awards. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. So, tell us about Jody. Well, Jody and I um, had been married uh, or together for 14 years before she got diagnosed. She was a special needs teacher, um, so very giving personality. She taught autistic um, kids and was actually teaching in Ho Chi Minh when she was diagnosed. And uh, an amazing person. Um, uh, we had a fantastic uh, relationship. She was very caring, an amazing mother. Um, and we enjoyed doing a lot of things together. We enjoyed travel. Uh, I got moved around a lot with my job, you know, to countries like Vietnam. Uh, when I asked her to come with me, she didn't skip a beat. Um, she was very, very supportive. And, uh, yeah, we, we just had this amazing relationship. How, how did you first meet? We first met in Brisbane, actually, and uh, we were at a, uh, a friend of mine used to live with Jody, and uh, he got invited to dinner at Jody's place. And he said, "Can I bring my mate?" And uh, <laughs> Jody actually spent that night trying to set me up with her, all her friends. And I thought to myself, "Well, actually, I'm not interested in your friends. I'm actually interested in in you." And I'd. Um, recently uh, split up with a, a girl in South Australia. The distance just became too great and uh, so Jody was hell-bent on finding me a, a new love and all I was thinking about was, <laughs> was Jody. And, and that sort of match of your corporate background, you were working with Unilever at the That's time? That's right, so, yeah, um, yeah. And Jody's, uh, well, very different profession in that sense. I mean, it sounds like the two of you were, were quite complementary. Yeah, it seemed to balance really well. I mean, I had a very busy um, job and uh, significant commitments and working pretty long hours. And the advantage of school teaching is that... Uh, uh, whilst it occupied a lot of her mind, uh, her actual hours of, of work were, were less than mine. And then, of course, when we had kids, um, Jody was um, uh, teaching only part-time and then also doing some tutoring of children as well. So we were able to balance our careers um, in that way very nicely. How does it feel to speak about her now? Is there a still a sense of rawness even five years on? Absolutely. Um, uh, and, you know, it's, 
it, I don't know when that's going to go. I, I, I don't know when I'm going to be able to talk very freely without it having um, an impact on me. I was just inducting one of our new employees um, earlier today and I was showing a, an old video and there's a couple of times in that video where I get very sentimental and uh, very emotional. And there's certain things that I talk about when I talk about when we first told the kids that Jody had been diagnosed and I, I first... Um, talk about the diagnosis itself and then I talk about when Jodie tried to inform me that she knew she wasn't going to to make it you know all those times are very emotional Mm. um, times for me and I still haven't found a way of kind of not taking myself back and that's I guess where the emotion gets driven from. How did you tell the kids I mean they were four and six at the time yeah Four and six when Jody was diagnosed and eight, eight and six when she died. And Jody died in January 2010 and we told the kids in August 2009 and that, that was a really difficult um, conversation to have. And I thought with Jody being the sick one and me being the, the man in the, in the relationship, I thought, right, this is my responsibility. I've got to harden up and, and uh, inform the the kids and we sat them down we've got a my parents have a beach house um at victor harbour which is an hour south of adelaide and we took them down there and we'd planned it all out and i knew exactly what i was hoping to be able to say to them and uh i got two words in and that was it and jody picked up the baton um didn't skip a beat very strongly communicated um that to the to the kids that you know she wasn't going to make it um, and, you know, it's, it's a really tough thing. I think the kids initially reacted to our emotions around it mm. um, and then you just have these amazing conversations with the, the kids. Uh, you know, they ask these seemingly, uh, they are related questions but you get this wonderful sense of um, kids being kind of all about themselves and just, you know, still wanting to have fun and and move on in their lives. And it was just a really refreshing thing for us to to actually do. Um, You know, we, in the lead up, um, it was a very tough time thinking about how we might do it and should we do it. And then when we told them, uh, you know, they asked sort of very practical questions as well. You know, who's going to do my hair in the morning and all this sort of stuff. So um, that really helped both Jody and I seeing these kids kind of ask us openly questions about, you know, what was going to happen going forward. And, and I think at that stage with Jack being eight, he probably understood a little bit better um, mm. than, than Bella. Bella kind of, I don't think, understood the permanency of, of death. Um, so they handled it in, in very different ways, but it was just a great opportunity for us. And at that point we thought Jodie had about 12 months to, to live, but it was only four months when, when she passed away. But at least it gave us that opportunity to, to talk to them and, and try and give them a sense of what life might be like um, when Jodie passed away. Were there things you did with the kids, knowing how the, the Jodie's time was so limited? Yeah, and that, that went back really from the first time Jodie was diagnosed. So Jodie was amazing in, in her want to ensure that the kids weren't impacted or certainly impacted mm. as least as possible. So I remember one camping trip which took a huge amount of courage for Jodie to, to go away and go camping with the kids. Um, and that was really tough. Jodie had a horrible night and she was up with diarrhoea and vomiting and, and it was an awful um, experience for her, but she was so hell-bent on ensuring that the kids weren't impacted in uh, you know, they were going to be impacted, but um, she did whatever she could to ensure that that was limited. Um, and that was spoke volumes of Jodie's character too. She was so focused on those kids. And it's interesting, one of the things that happened to her um, when she did get diagnosed, her sense of priorities was really acute and that was around family and, and kids. Um so she invested all the energy that she had left into to me and the kids effectively. I remember a Canberra woman who I spoke to who'd been diagnosed with advanced breast cancer talked about her feeling that she needed to pack all of the parenting into a couple of years to have teenage level talks with her then 10 year old because she wouldn't be around to do that did did you get the sense of Jodie feeling that the need to 
to sort of accelerate the kids or to, to say things that would otherwise be left said later? Yeah, I, she did that through a journal. Um, so I remember the night we went away um, and we had dinner together and, and our objective was to, to walk away with the topics that she wanted to cover in her journal. Mm. Um, and so that was a pretty confronting discussion for me because Jodie knew a lot before I did that she was going to pass away. I was kind of clinging on to this um, false hope, um, I guess, in in reflection. Uh, and so having those types of conversations were really uncomfortable for me because I was still thinking, oh, there's got to be something that's going to happen, yes. you know, there'll be a medical breakthrough or or we'll, we'll, she'll get healthy again. Um, so we had that discussion and, and we went through a lot of topics. We ended up with about a dozen topics that she wanted to address um, through her journal. And she probably got to about 80% of, of those. Um, increasingly, she found it more difficult to devote time to it and, and headspace to it. But over a period of time, she wrote about 50 pages in a journal, which is amazing. Um, and I've just actually recently shared that with the kids there were topics that about sex and drugs and alcohol and um boyfriends and other things that um you know weren't right for them at that particular yes. time but right for them now so jack's 16 and bella's 13 so it's very relevant for them now um and also my sister did this uh, helped me with this amazing book on Jodie's life right from when she was a baby right through to um, the end of her life and there were lots of sort of 21st speeches and other things and it gave a real sense of, mm. of Jodie the woman, um, the mother and, and uh, who what she was like growing up. So that and the journal have provided my kids with amazing sort of ability to um, understand their mother but also um her advice to in, endure through their through their lives and on topics that she wasn't ready to, or they weren't ready to to receive at that time but could through the journal so that's been amazing and that's something you know I often get asked when um, people find themselves in a similar situation you know I get questions do you mind having a chat to them about your experiences and I'll yes. often say that 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 was just a really valuable thing for us to do as a couple um, and as I said at that time, if she asked, Jodie said, oh, you know, do you think this is a good idea? I probably would have said no because you're going to get through it. But she was adamant that she wanted to do it and I'm so glad um, that she did make the effort because there's some wonderful things in there for the kids to, to continue to reflect back on throughout their lives. And so they've they've got physical copies each of the, the journals that they... Yeah, yeah. And look, we were lucky. We travelled a lot in our... Um, our relationship so we've got a lot of video footage and footage mm. of the kids and footage of things that Jody did with the kids and so that's all there so I feel like we've got a this wonderful sense of who she was captured through her journal this book and also the videos that we have and you know we might go six months where we don't talk about it or open it and I'll walk into one of the kids rooms and they're in the middle of you know looking through a book so it's uh, it's a very cool thing to to have yeah, um, and it, and it, and it's a great depiction of of who she was. Yes, yes. Uh, what about for friends? Uh, most of us are, I think, pretty hopeless in knowing what to say in the in the face of death. What um, what did what were some of the things your friends did that were good, or conversely, things that were uh, were, were pretty hopeless? Did you did you want them to distract you and talk about other things? Did you want them to talk talk about death directly? Did you want them to have deep and meaningful conversations, or just stay out of your way? Yeah. Um, Look, I don't know that there's any one right answer um, to that. Um, I think. If I had to put it down to one thing, I would just say be as genuine as you possibly could. Um, we had people who hadn't been in our, our lives very much and when Jodie got diagnosed really wanted to be in our lives and wanted to spend time with us. And I mentioned before about Jodie having an acute focus on what her priorities were and, you know, people that hadn't been in our lives for a long period of time wasn't a priority of Jodie's. So we felt like that wasn't the right way to um, connect with us. Um, other friends, there was a, a group of mothers that got together and... Um, mapped out a, a weekly meal plan and would, would just have an esky at the back door and drop meals off. And that's an amazing way to help yes. and support as a, as a friend. So you're not um, utilising valuable time. In fact, you're giving back time. Um, so that's a very practical and useful way um, to help. And 
I don't think it's worth avoiding it, but, you know, we would sometimes go out and because our lives were so consumed with what was going on, we actually use those times to go out to kind of take ourselves away. And then when you've got friends and um, family um, and others talking to you in some detail, you kind of think, well, the purpose was to try and get away from this and now we're here we are yes. talking about it. So I guess um, as people, Jody and I, stuck in this um, awful situation, you've got to be quite upfront with friends and say, look, you know, I'd love to talk to you about it, but this is not the right time. And you've got to, we've got to kind of help our friends mm. manage it as well. Because for, for a lot of our friends, Jody was the first person in our group that had been struck down by a, a terminal disease in this way. Um, so people weren't used to, to dealing with it. Um, but as I said, if, if, if I had one piece of advice, it would be be very genuine, but also pick up the the cues to, you know, there's a right time and wrong times to have those discussions. Don't shy away from it, um, but maybe even leading with the question, you know, do you mind talking about it or is it not something you want to chat about at this stage? And that makes a very easy yes. way to, yes. for me or Jody to say, oh, actually, now's not the right time or, you know. Um, and, and just simple um, uh, text messages to say, I'm thinking about you. That's all it takes. You don't want a response. Don't ask a question. Mm. Just say, I'm thinking about you. And that means so much to, you know, people going through that situation. You know, it's just a very helpful way to support someone. Um, and Jody was also very good at writing a monthly or, you know, um, bi-weekly email. We had a big sort of distribution mm. list just to update people and it got to the point where I remember Jody sent out one saying, please don't respond to this because I'm just not strong enough to um, or I can't spend that amount of time just responding to everybody, which she felt guilty about if she didn't. Um, so it was a good practical way to say, here, we're going to update you guys as friends, but please don't um, ask any questions in, in response because Jody hasn't got the, the opportunity to um, respond individually. Yes. So, yeah, hopefully there's a few things in that in answer to your question, but that, that whole sort of being, being genuine and mm. uh, not being afraid to, to talk about it, but support in the, in the right way is probably the key advice I'd give people. Yeah, now that's a range of very practical suggestions there, Nick. And so Jody passed away in January of 2010 and then in that period of grief, were there, were there other things that you felt were, were useful from others that you, you, re you really appreciated? Was it, was it much the same of people just being willing to be genuine to provide the practical support like meals? Yeah, and I think... Um, Certainly we were lucky in as much we had a large group of friends who really did want to support in the right way. So they would often contact, um, you know, my parents or others around us and say, what do you, what do you think is the right way to, mm. to help Nick and, and Jody?" Um, and some friends got together as an example and raised a little money to cover um, Jody's medical expenses and I was just blown away by the support from, from those guys. We had no idea who was on that list Um and who contributed, but it was a, a reasonable amount of, of money. Um, we had friends that said, you know, take a holiday house for a week, just get away, um, let me pick up the kids from school, let me take the kids for a couple of hours to give you guys some, a chance to kind of spend some time together, just the two of you. So there's lots of really practical yes. ways that, you know, the, the meals is a really um, practical way um, as well. And, you know, just... Um, going to at times I couldn't be with Jody while she was going through her, her chemo so sitting with Jody um, and sometimes it wasn't saying much you know it was just being there as a sort of emotional support so there's loads of different things that can be done um, in a very practical and relevant way to support when someone's going through something like this but it's it's really the emotional support. If you could, I guess if you could think about it in terms of how can you give back time because mm. that's mm. something you become very aware you've got very little of. So the, the practical things like picking up from school and and um, meals and things like that gives 
gives a couple back a little bit of, of time. And then that sort of emotional support of, you know, I'm thinking about you, um, we're here if we need to, if we can possibly help out in, in any way, um, is a great way to um, connect emotionally but also help Jodie um, knowing that she's got a, a huge amount of support out there and people really thinking about her and, and um, wishing her well. And at what point did you think about setting up the Jodie Lee Foundation? Well, I'd raised quite a bit of money for the Cancer Council um, when Jodie was alive and um, and I'd been quite successful at that fundraising. I think I'd raised about $150,000 for the South Australian Cancer Council. Um, and the concern I had with that was that it wasn't all going into bowel cancer and obviously that was what I was passionate about. Um, and I think when Jodie passed away... Um, and I got a bit of an opportunity to kind of reflect after that. Um, and I've been through this horrible, horrible situation, which is shared by your family and friends. I've had some success at, at fundraising. I'm very passionate about wanting to do something to ensure people didn't go through what we went through as a family. Um, so that was really the main trigger. And for me, bowel cancer, I felt like without a medical background and contributing to come up with a cure, there was something very practical that I could do. And, and having an experience in business and sales and marketing um, and some success at fundraising, I felt like I had the skills um, mm. to be able to help to deliver that. And equally, I had a lot of support um, around Tiffany Young, the co-founder of the uh, foundation. We complemented each other extremely well in the, in the skills that we had. We had a lot of friends that we could lean on for um, particular advice. Most of my friends tried to talk me out of it. Um, but it was just a really driving sense that I needed to, to do something. And I didn't know how that long that would last. You know, I, it could have been 12 months, it could have been six months, it could be, you know, we were into seven years. We had our seven-year anniversary um, earlier this month. Um, so at that point I had no idea what it would look like, but I just felt this massive overriding urge that I had to do something. I wasn't going to be happy um, to just leave it. Uh, and strategically we got some good advice. I had this sort of ambition that was sort of beyond doing the foundation part-time, so I got some advice from my current chair um, that I needed to to take it on full-time if I was going to take it on, and uh, uh, along with um, Tiffany and our, our team, we've built something that's pretty amazing. So you, you left, your, left your job, a presumably well-paying corporate position, um, I'm interested in that decision. I was was listening to a podcast with Jim Koch, who uh, left a management consulting job to uh, start the brewer, Sam Adams, and he dist distinguishes between things that are scary and things are dangerous. And he says if you're abseiling off the ba off a building, then it's scary, but actually not very dangerous. And then he flips it around and he says if you're thinking about being stuck in a job that will be dissatisfying when you retire, that's something that's very dangerous but not very scary. Mm -hmm. um, does that framework fit your decision to leave Unilever and, uh, and, and start, start up your, your charity? Yeah, well, I think it does because um, one of the things that when Jodie and I looked back on her life and you kind of think, well, what were the triggers that made her unwell. I mean, everybody's got potential for, for cancer cells and for some reason or another at some point they turn. And as you know, obviously what happened with, with Jodie. And so you kind of reflect back and you say, well, what, what could have contributed um, to that? And Jodie um, did go through some stress. She lost a, a brother early on and, um, you know, her parents um, split up and, you know, she had a, a challenging life. So there was some stress um, as she was growing up, um, and she was also quite a perfectionist. And so, um, you know, she did worry about mm. a lot of things and, uh, and she did um, invest a huge amount of her time and herself into getting things right, and uh, she did sweat the small things. I mean, one of the wonderful things that I learnt from Jodie post diagnosis is not sweat the small stuff and, and get your priorities right. 
Um, and it's sad that it takes something like that for me to have changed in the way I have, but that's the reality of it. But it was a really big decision. You know, Unilever, I had this fantastic job. I was earning great money. I knew that that money would sustain the kids through private schools and all this sort of stuff to going to running a foundation where all those sorts of things are are huge question marks. Um, mm. You know, you're, you're not earning the, the salaries as a director of a, a large multinational company. You you want the best for your kids, which sometimes takes a, a financial contribution. Um, you've gone from this big organisation with all the support structures around to effectively starting up um, a new business and uh, all the challenges that come with that. So massively large um, change of a career but I actually didn't get a sense of risk around that I, I it, it felt so much like something that I had to do mm. that mm. any of those sorts of thoughts kind of um, uh, went into the background now you could argue that I'd, I'd built up um, a reasonable amount of assets while I was working with Unilever, so I was quite well financially supported. Um, I had a lot of family and, and friends that were were there for emotional and social um, support. So I was lucky in many respects, but I, I didn't feel that that risk that you you talk about there um, in relation to setting up the the foundation. When I when I talk to you now about what what I actually changed. Um, it feels like a massive change. But back then, it just really felt like something I had to do. But it's very interesting the way you say that because that's that's the same way in which Jim Kosh saw his, his decision, that the real risk wasn't changing jobs. The real risk was the prospect of being, of continuing to walk down the same safe career path and ending up uh, in 30 years' time deeply regretting the decision that you'd made. And yeah. It sounds like the chance in 30 years' time that you'll regret setting up the Jody Lee Foundation is pretty much zero. Yeah, no, I, um, I totally agree with that, absolutely. And I think... You know, to find something that really um, does engage you at your core is is a wonderful sense. Um, and I got a bit of that at, at Unilever. I mean, Unilever does some wonderful work, for example, in Vietnam, in the communities in Vietnam, which I loved getting involved in. And I loved seeing people in my team and colleagues develop. And if I could contribute to, to their own personal development, that was hugely rewarding for me. But... Once then I set up the, the foundation and you start to see the impact you can have and, you know, people who come up to you and say, you know, it, without the Joe Lee Foundation I wouldn't be here anymore. You know, the, the, the sense that that gives you is just phenomenal. And I think, you know, to be able to inspire people, not just have those fantastic early detection stories but also to change people's lives in a positive way as a result mm. of what the foundation has done, you know, getting people being more active, getting people more interested in their diet and lifestyle, Um challenging them with the events that we we run inspiring them to do things um which they may not have considered doing before is 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 probably i expected and hoped that we might save a few lives those other things i actually hadn't thought too deeply about before setting up the foundation and that's been a, an added or massive added bonus so people raise money in all kinds of different ways uh, you know sometimes it's by uh, do, doing, doing a walk around your local community or sometimes it's by reading a number of books and a readathon. Um, but you chose some pretty crazy sporting events. Um, what drove that? Well, I've always been a little bit mad <laughs> when it comes to that. I'm a very competitive um, person and uh, if you look back uh, on my life, I've um, participated in, in eight marathons. I've um, done a Peaks Challenge in the UK, which is a 24-hour event. I've done um, the Oxfam, which is another 24-hour um, event. I've cycled three times um, uh, in the Peaks Challenge, which is 240 kilometres a day and 4,000 metres of climbing. Um, so I've always been into those, um, I guess, physical and mental um, challenges. And that's helped me hugely uh, exercise. I, I, I just think it's such a fundamental um, thing for, for me in my entire life, but particularly when Jody passed away. If, if you'd taken exercise away from me, I think I would have really struggled 
to deal with the grief in the same way that I, I was able to. Um, not saying it's it's easy, but it, it just provided me this this really important outlet. Um, and it was just a positive choice that I, I made as well. And um, so it's always been part of my DNA. Um, and I think it's also a great way um, for people to take on a, a challenge and then others around them to mm. think that, you know, this is a big challenge. Um, it's an inspiring thing that this person is doing. I want to contribute. Um, so I never really know the mix when people participate in one of our events, whether people are donating to the individual themselves or they're donating um, to the to the cause. In reality, it's probably a bit of both. But having those challenging events has certainly... Um, uh, kind of been a core part of the brand of the Joe Lee Foundation, certainly core part of Nick Lee as the um, as one of the founders, um, and has raised a lot of money for us. So it has been a fairly successful strategy. So was Ride for the Little, uh, little Black Dress the first of these events? Yeah, it was our kind of signature um, event. So when we saw you in in Canberra, we ran that. Um, that event for the first five years that the foundation operated and we were a bit of a victim of our own success actually because we had a lot of those people that did the first um, ride come and do the rides um, year after year which was fantastic that they wanted to to do it but we found there's an event itself in terms of spreading our network and the awareness opportunities um, somewhat limiting but again it fed the kind of core of what our brand was all about you know we really did want to challenge people in in healthy ways and we wanted to get into communities and we wanted to spread the word in in a relevant way and we wanted to feel you know for people attached to the foundation to feel inspired by what we were doing and the idea of choosing a little black dress which was uh, something that Jody, uh, Jody loved, uh, seemed uh, so, sort of beautifully fitting. It was something, I don't know, just struck me as quintessentially Australian to uh, to uh, take this awful tragedy and to respond to it by putting a bunch of blokes in drag on bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> and riding from Canberra to Melbourne, I should have said beforehand, not down the Hume Highway but over Mount Buller, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We um, we climbed Mount Buller um, and we climbed through the New South Wales Alps um, uh, as well. So it was it was a very, very um, tough ride, tough seven days in the, in the saddle. Um, but, yeah, and, and it... For for Jody, um, she loved the little black dress, as you said, and it was a group of friends in Vietnam that got together originally, and sat around and said, "Right, we want to help." Um, and and uh, there were some Australians, but some foreigners in that group of people. But they they wanted to identify something that you know they could attach to mm. to Jody. So they came up with um, a number of different options, but the little black dress was something that Jody loved to, to go out and have a have a good time. So um, we then carried that forward and you know it's a great way of there is some stigma around bowel cancer and to try and cut through and have a conversation. Uh, you know, and it's an important conversation to have and it's quite a serious conversation, but to do that in a slightly light-hearted way, we don't want to take ourselves too seriously. We wanted to connect with people. We want to try and break down that stigma. So um, you can imagine riding through these towns in uh, in the ACT and, and Victoria, a 20-group, 20-strong team of, of cyclists in little black dresses kind of meant that the locals were very happy to come up and have a chat and find out what you were doing. So it was a great way to, to cut through. Yes, and you can then move to those conversations like I think it was uh, – I remember you telling me at the, at the, at the time that uh, being tested for bowel cancer doesn't involve anything going up your bottom, uh, which is uh, a, revelation, a revelation for many people, I think. That's right. Um, that's my uh, – yes. Uh, and then the Victorian Peaks Challenge, uh, 240 kilometres, 4,000 metres. How do you get yourself through that mentally in a single, a single day? Yeah, and, and I think it's a more of a, a mental event than it is a, a physical event because there's so many times over that period because, you know, you start at the top of Falls, down t- Falls, over to Toowoomba Gap, up and down Toowoomba Gap, over to Hotham, up and down Hotham, and you finish at the the top of Falls and you ride the back end of Falls. Um, and there's that's about 20-plus kilometres of really, really steep climbing, mm. which you hit 
when you've done 210 kilometres already. So the temptation to, oh, I just can't keep going, is, is huge. And so you're tested four or five times during the course of that event um, mentally to, to keep going. And so I, I, I do believe it's more of a mental event, but it's not something, you know, it's something that you really do have to, to prepare for. You've got to have the hours on the, on the bike to do something like um, that. But, you know, I, I feel quite spurred on and when I hit those moments, you know, that's the times where I think most about um, Jody and my family. You know, that's the easiest way I find to, to get through it. Um, all of a sudden you become completely distracted and there's something inside that, that kicks in and, and away mm. you go again. Mm. Um, and for everybody it's different but uh, it is a very mental mental event but the the sense of achievement afterwards is is quite extraordinary i i do and it's probably why i've done so many different events that that sense of achievement um and fulfillment that you get from that is is quite amazing and you've got other events that you uh, have supporters going on. You've got a, t- a squad that does the New York Marathon every every year. I understand. Yeah, that's you've got right. The JLF Trek. This uh, how far how far is the JLF Trek? So it's eighty kilometres, um, forty kilometres a day over two days, um, and we've had huge participation. We've had over three hundred participants in doing that um, event here in South Australia. In fact, a couple of years ago, we won South Australia's best charity event for that um, event. So on the back of that, we've extended it to Victoria so we're into our second year in in Victoria and that's coming up in a couple of weeks time Um, so that allows us to get quite significant participation and it's great having people or giving them an outlet um, who have been impacted by this disease to come and do something and feel like they are making a difference so not only is it challenging you in a healthy way but it's also providing a lot of people um, with a real outlet to support someone going through a similar experience or something that they've they've been through themselves. Do you have a lot to do with uh, people who've been diagnosed with uh, with bowel cancer? Do you find yourself speaking uh, speaking in groups with uh, with uh, those people far more now? Yeah, I think, um, and that that sort of um, comes to us a lot uh, without us necessarily chasing it. For us, we're very focused on prevention so that's all about education and um you know making people understand um their family history what symptoms to watch out for the fact that there's a very simple screening test that people can do what are the diet and lifestyle factors to minimize your risk so that's our focus so we're not um really about beyond diagnosis setting up support structures for for people going through um, the disease. Having said that, with the, uh, my own personal experience, I hope that you know in some ways I can I can help people. So as I said to you before, I often do get a phone call saying, you know, would you mind having a chat? And that might not just be bowel cancer; it might be other cancers or other particular diseases or other people going through a really tough time. And hopefully through that, I can lend some experience and help in some way. Um, but yeah, our, our key focus is all around prevention. Yes. Uh, how do you see the foundation in a decade's time? Well, I hope it's going to have the same presence that we've got in here in South Australia right round the country. And if that's the case, then we will have made a huge difference. I mean, the, the, the screening participation behind the government program is highest in South Australia and we strongly feel that we've made a significant contribution to that. And whilst we are a national foundation, we've got a lot of work to do to raise our awareness and educate many more people, particularly along the eastern mm. seaboard, but mm. broadly um, within Australia. So um, that looks like a uh, an organisation and a brand that is really um, not only saving a lot of lives, but also um, impacting people in many positive ways. And a lot of those positive ways um, relate to diet and lifestyle. So we would love to inspire people to improve um, their diets, move more. Um, you know, you look at some of our initiatives around the events that we run. We also have an event called Care Day, which encourages school kids to move more. We work and partner with the AFL Um and uh, hopefully through that partnership, you know, we're encouraging people to, to move more and getting our messages out there. So you can see the links 
are there and, and we feel like um, we've got the right set of initiatives. We just need to expand them um, so we can reach more Australians and, and that's where, um, you know, we're, we're looking for that support from people. And in terms of diet and lifestyle tips, uh, good lot of exercise, eat lots of green leafy vegetables, take it easy on the red meat? Yeah, the processed meats and, and red meat, there is a direct um, link there. Um, but there's lots of uh, links as well. You know, alcohol is is one, so minimising your alcohol content. Smoking is an obvious one. Um, sleeping, they're, they're things that most people um, know about inherently. I guess the biggest challenge for us is when you look at the fact that people have been better educated than they've ever been before about what they should be doing with their diet and lifestyle, yet things like diabetes and obesity and, and other um, critical illnesses are going the other way. So what is the trigger that helps people make those decisions and, and act on them and live their lives in that way as opposed to just knowing it? And that's that's the big challenge. And that's the big challenge we have around encouraging people to take a simple screening test. I mean, the test takes no longer than a couple of minutes to do and it's widely available and it's 90% preventable if you can catch it early. All, all this logic around why you should do it, yet the bulk of Australians that should be doing it haven't done it yet. So what do we need to do to try and trigger that? Um, so that's a big focus um, for us, obviously, going forward. Um, and I think one of the things that is really, really important is that that whole moving more. I mean, our, our bodies mm. were built to move and you think about what's happening is we're sitting down for huge proportions of our day. I read a research report that said if you're sitting down for any longer than four hours at a time, it's having an impact on your health. Sorry, four hours in a day. Um, so we sit down for breakfast, we get in the car and we sit down and we come into work and we sit down and we um, sit down in the car to go back home and uh, we sit down for dinner and then we sit in front of the TV and then we go to bed. Um, that's not moving nearly enough. And so uh, one of the messages that you'll see come through consistently from the foundation is the importance of moving. One of the things that really struck me about my stand-up desk was initially I would sort of sit down for about a third of the day and then for half the day and then eventually two-thirds and, and now all the time. And not only do I now stand up the whole time with a stand-up desk, but it's made me much more intolerant of sitting down in other contexts. Yeah. So if I have to sit in the car for a long period or sit on a plane for a long period, I'm, I'm much much antsier than I used to be before I had my, uh, my wonderful stand-up desk. Yeah. Well, you know, that's habitual because mm. you've mm. got in a habit of standing up and that's what we need to instil. And so take an example, our K a Day program encourages – um, school kids to run a kilometre a day over 21 days to effectively run a half marathon. Um, and so what we're trying to do by that, it's not a, a one-off, you know, run a kilometre and, you know, support in that way. We're trying to get school kids into the habit of moving more. And we've got lots of fantastic reports from parents saying, you know, that has made a difference. You know, I was running along some aside some kids um, as part of that program who hadn't run a couple of kilometres ever in their lives. And these are kids who are, you know, 12, 13, 14. So the research says that 80% of kids don't move enough. And so that program is designed to try and encourage people to to move more and, and trying to break mm. their existing habits and get them into more healthy habits. And how are you a different person than what you, what you would have been 15 years ago? Um... You said I you didn't, didn't sweat the small stuff before? Yeah. Or there... Well, I, I um, through Jody, um, I guess don't concern myself with uh, issues as much as I, I used to. I'm not so concerned about what people think of me. I'm, I guess in that respect I'm truer to, to my values than I used to be. Um, I'm far more easy on myself than I ever used to be too. I was kind of felt like I, being competitive, I'd be quite critical of myself. I'm, mm. I think that's a big change actually um, is that I'm, uh, I, I don't take myself very seriously. I um, love to have a laugh um, and, you know, in situations like that, you know, confront me and I've had sort of two major situations in my life, losing my wife and losing one of my best friends and, and you have to be easy on yourself. You have to be kind to yourself. I used to think that um, 
you know, um, being kind to others was the thing that I should focus on mo- most. And that, that is really important. But if you ask me one kind of fundamental shift since Jody passed away, it's kind of not shifting away from being kind to others. That is very important. But this whole focus on being kind um, to yourself and having this sort of self-compassion and self-empathy. So to wrap up with a couple of final questions, Nick, uh, when, when are you most happy? You know what, I, I think I have a very happy um, life. I've got great friends and family, so my relationships are really good. I exercise a lot and I, I prioritise um, my exercise. Uh, I love my job. The sense of purpose um, that I get from my job is, is huge. Um, so I feel like I have a lot to be very thankful for. So for me in answering that question, it's when I feel um, my best from a well-being perspective. So when you've got so many of those things in life to enjoy, when I'm enjoying them the most is when I'm feeling on top of the world from a fitness and mental um, perspective. So my general well-being, when my general well-being is high, I've got all these amazing levers to be able to pull to, to make myself happy. So... Um, what makes me the happiest or when I'm at my happiness is when I've got all those things in my life in, in balance. Um, so that, that's when I feel, feel the happiest. Yes. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, I think, well, actually it's probably not so much uh, a belief. I, I was... Something that I used to say to my kids a lot, I, I said to them, you know, your happiness is dictated by the relationships in your life and the relationships you have are dictated by how you make people feel. So if you can make people feel good in their lives, you'll have great relationships. And so that was all about how you make people feel and, and that's held firm for, for me um, over the course of my my life and it is something that I'm focused on. Probably the biggest change is what I mentioned before is that self-compassion, being a bit more focused Mm -hmm. about how I treat myself in a certain situation. And I feel like, um, you know, we've all got a choice. Sometimes you can't control what happens to you but you can control how you react to that. Um, So if you you react to a certain situation, a tough situation with a great sense of self-compassion, I think you're, you're doing the right thing. So... Um, I've kind of balanced that really being very focused on how other people feel to making sure that I'm looking after myself as well. And I used to get that in spades from friends. I used to, when Jodie was sick, I was running around and thinking I needed to be everything to everybody and trying to do whatever I could to to keep Jodie perked up. And loads of people would come to me and go, Nick, you've got to make sure you look after yourself. And mm. that was great advice. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Um, oh, there's lots of things I would say um, about that. You know, life, obviously, the experience that I've been through can change in an instant. So um, the other sense that I got, um, which my life has changed, is just making the most of, of your life. And it's very cliched, um, but it's probably cliched for a good reason. You know, that's a, a really important one. Don't sweat, sweat the small stuff um, we talked about before. Um Taking responsibility for your mistakes as well. That's something I try and instill in the in the kids. You know, don't be uh, afraid to have a crack at things. You're going to make mistakes. You're only human. Um, treat yourself well once you make a mistake. Learn from those mistakes and be happy to um, uh, to say you're, you're sorry. Um, but, you know, I've mentioned quite a few of them. Don't take yourself too, too seriously. Um, but probably the one thing that I would hope to reinforce to people um, in whatever way I can through the foundation or anything that I do for the rest of my career um, is around that importance of of health. Um, I mean, the Dalai Lama has this amazing quote when he talks about health, which is, um, men sacrifice uh, their health to make money, then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health, and then he is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present, the result being that he does not live in the present or the future, 
he lives as if he's never going to die and he dies having never really lived. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's so true. I remember yeah. just first reading that a couple of years ago and I just thought, my God, that is so insightful and so true. Um, and I see so many of my parents' friends and and. Um, a generation ahead of mine who work their lives mm. and work so hard and they get to retirement age and they get sick. Well, what's the point? You know, invest in your health now if you aren't already doing so. It's so important. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I think it's that exercise. Um and I really prioritise that. I set myself goals and it helps when I'm doing those events because I have got a goal, yeah. um, you know, which I can see and know is coming and helps motivate me. Um, but when, when do you exercise? For how long? Normally um, at least five times a week um, for an hour and one of those will be a longer ride on the, mm. on the weekends. So I try and get to the gym. I try and do it as much as possible in the morning so things don't interrupt it. Um, but as I say, it is a priority. So, um, and it's something to try, try and instill um, in the, the team here. You know, I often leave the office at quarter past four in the afternoon if I haven't been able to exercise in the morning and go to the gym mm. for an hour so I can be home with the kids when they get home and cook them dinner and be with, with them. So I do focus on it and I do make sure it is a, is a priority and I know that that's when I'm going to be my best. Mm. I'm less grumpy. I'm more efficient, I'm more effective, my relationships don't suffer as much and I know that's when I'm at my best is, as I said, when I've got that real feeling of well-being and a lot of that for me comes through exercise. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, Comprehensive list, please. Yeah, well, I think if I, if I had to say my top three would be, and not particularly in this order, um, wine, Chocolate and ice cream. So uh, <laughs> they, they are my guilty pleasures and I do indulge on um, probably when it comes to the wine on too many occasions. But, uh, yeah, the chocolate and ice cream are a big one for me. As well. uh, look, we're in Adelaide. Yeah. You, you, you're a city that does all three of those products exceptionally well. So <laughs> that, uh, I don't think anyone would blame you for those guilty pleasures. No, we're well looked after. We've got um, uh, Hague's here and we've got, uh, as you know, plenty of... Um, great wine labels as well and and part of my job with Unilever too was bringing Ben and Jerry's ice cream to um, Australia so you can imagine. Congratulations. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's a proud achievement. That is a very proud achievement. Uh, and finally, Nick, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Look, I've been really, really lucky that I would say um, through my grandparents and parents that I've had amazing examples and, and particularly my father, um, he's, uh, he's, he has this great sense of integrity and, and fairness. He was a, uh, a, a district court judge in his, his career and I've just... Um, uh, he, he is such a fantastic role model for me to, to look up to. Um, you know, that sense of integrity just guides his uh, all his decisions and it's um, uh, something that, you know, I've been um, very focused on. I'm very proud of um, the integrity and, you know, the foundation and what we've done with the foundation and the brand that we've developed. I just see it as such an important thing in the not-for-profit space as well. Um, so for me personally and my values, it's really... Um, the family is probably the single biggest contributor to to that sense of values and particularly my father, as I mentioned. Well, Nick Lee, thank you very much for sharing your wisdom and your insights in the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week... I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.